Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm feeling rested. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. we, we had Eid this week. Yeah, Adha uh, Mubarak to everyone celebrating. Yeah, and so like the, we had like three days off in the middle of the week. Uh, officially, it was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So some people went into work like Monday and Friday, right? So it was yeah. like this this coming week, everybody should come back like very rested. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hope yeah. so. So, I mean, that means that we had, like, sort of a slow week as well in the news. Not a whole lot going on, but just to quickly fill you guys in. Um, so, last weekend, actually, not not just this past weekend that we just had, but the weekend before that, Nasrallah hosted a delegation uh, from the Houthis, uh, the Yemeni uh, rebel group, right? Okay. Uh, which w- was... Kind of a big deal, uh, and and kicked up some some feathers, uh, ruffled some feathers, uh, kicked up some dust here. Uh, obviously, the UAE was not happy about this. Like their uh, foreign affairs uh, state minister came out saying Lebanon cannot be a logistic or political station for the Houthis. Gibran uh, mm-hmm. Basile, I I think he just sort of like put out sort of a middle statement, like just reaffirming Lebanon's dissociation policy, where yeah. we don't get involved in other you know other conflicts in the region. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Basile, he also visited Lavrov in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so this is supposedly all about refugee returns and everything. Supposedly, Russia has a plan to return refugees to Syria, um, and and as part of this plan, uh, I, I guess uh, the uh, Russian uh, ambassador here in Lebanon has formed like a committee, and they've uh, the Russian authorities have urged uh, the Lebanese authorities to form a similar committee, and they're 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 doing something, you know, to try and move this thing forward where uh, refugees would be going back to Syria, and so that's why Basile was there in Moscow, uh, at, at least ostensibly. I I think they were probably also talking about cabinet formation, my <laughs> favorite topic, because uh, so many so many officials have been visiting Moscow lately. You know why why is Talal Ashlin yeah. In Moscow. Why was he there uh, a couple of weeks ago? And Jumblat as well, right? Uh, uh, the younger Jumblat, right? Yeah, Timur. Timur. You know, like, are, are they talking refugee returns too? Or is there something more? I I don't know, but, you know. But what we know is that Russia is trying to kind of play the liaison between Lebanon and the Syrian regime uh, to try to facilitate the return of... It seems, yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, just because we mentioned this uh, in last week's podcast, the, the whole beaches, uh, are they clean or not? Hassan Hasbani, the uh, Minister of Health, this week came out and uh, called for the Ministry of Energy and Water to give notices of which beaches are suitable to swim at and which ones are not safe to swim at. Okay. Uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on that if uh, if we get like some sort of official notice from a government body like, oh, no, this is safe. This is not safe. Also, uh, so my favorite topic, cabinet formation. <laughs> um, it's been 95 days as of Monday since uh, Saad Hariri's designation as prime minister. And and this week, uh, this past week, we saw a little bit of movement. Uh, on Friday, uh, Faisal Karami, uh, a Sunni uh, MP uh, from Tripoli, uh, called for uh, representation. He held a press conference and, and and said, like, okay, those of us who are not in the future movement, we want representation in cabinet as well. And this this sort of makes sense if you look at the numbers, because they're, they're out of the 27 Sunni seats in parliament, uh, only 17 are held by the future movement. The other 10 are just non-future movement people, okay. right? Uh, and so that's more than a third, right? More than yeah. a third are non-future. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I don't really think that this is a huge problem to solve like this will not take a lot to solve because all you have to do 
is it, it, if Hariri wants all six Sunni seats in, in a 30-member cabinet, well, okay, let's compromise. You'll get five Sunni seats and one Christian seat, and then let one of the Christians choose a Shiite and let, you know, the Shiites choose one Sunni, basically. You, you can yeah. just sort of, like, move things, move things around, around a little yeah. bit. This is not a big deal. This is just um, these people coming out and say, no, we want to be represented as well. Uh, also, regarding the cabinet formation, uh, supposedly Aoun is waiting until the 1st of September. Um, and, and and this week, he's going to be talking to Ruri and supposedly presenting ideas. And then uh, after the 1st of September, he has a plan in case there is no cabinet. Um, and and this, this sort of backs up what I've been saying. That I think we're sort of moving into this period where maybe we can be slightly optimistic that there could be a government. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Aoun... He wants to be seen as the strong leader, the president uh, of the republic, and uh, it. And if you are that, then you sometimes need to bash some heads together and get a government going. Yeah. Right. And so we might see him start to put some pressure on the different actors involved. You know, personally start to get a little bit more involved, uh, and and that would probably be a good thing if we want to see a cabinet. Uh, you know, in the next month or two. Right. Yeah. I I wonder whether Aoun's plan. Like the post one first of September plan would include putting some pressure on Basil, his son-in-law, you know, because who knows? As far yeah. as we know, he's been one of the main like challenges for the for the cabinet formation. Right, right, and it 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 seems as though so far Alan has basically given uh, Basil a very long leash, yeah. uh, and as well as everybody sort of stayed hands off, but maybe that's coming to an end. Because Aoun's reputation's on the line as well. Here, exactly, right? yeah. Uh, speaking of Aoun, he called uh, Bashar al-Assad o- uh, over the refugee crisis. This is according to a report in Al-Akhbar, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Made, made, made some people unhappy uh, that this would happen. You know, direct contact between heads of state. Also, a delegation from the United States was in town. Um, this uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Robert Story Karam, which... Karam, that sounds like a Lebanese name. I think it's Karam, but yeah, it's it's Karam. Okay. In both cases, it's Lebanese. It yeah. sounds Lebanese. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, uh, so this guy, obviously a member of the Trump administration, uh, but he he came in. He met with Aoun. Uh, he met with uh, Yaqub Saraf, the uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, with uh, Joseph Aoun, the head of the the army. And, uh, and after one of these uh, one of these meetings, uh, Michel Aoun, the president, called on the U.S. to support uh, Unifil's mandate renewal, which comes up this week. Uh, the Security Council is meeting uh, this week on Thursday, I believe the 30th, to vote on whether to extend uh, Unifil's mandate for another year or not. Uh, the actual mandate will end on the 31st, mm-hmm. so it's going right up to the last minute. Uh, that's sort of like usually how it's been going over the past few years. Um, and, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, uh, about Unifil, its history, what, what's going on. And, yeah. and that, you know, that, that incident that happened a year ago uh, about this time uh, <laughs> yeah. where there was a question about whether Unifil's mandate would be renewed and, and under what uh, circumstances or what changes would happen. Exactly. So I think it's uh, good to start with the basics, right? What Unifil is and uh, how it came to be in the first place. Um, And so Unifil was established in 1978 after Israel's invasion of South Lebanon. 
um, and it was under the Security Council Resolution 425 and 426, passed in 1978, which gave UNIFIL its mandate. And the mandate was basically to ensure the withdrawal of Israeli troops, right, to restore peace and security, uh, help Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese government, restore authority over the area. None of those things, like, really happened, <laughs> though, right? Yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. of. Yeah, so like UNIFIL just kept getting renewed and renewed and renewed. Like Israel sort of withdrew, but then they came back in 82, right? Yeah, exactly. In the much larger uh, invasion, uh, much bigger and, and much more prolonged occupation all the way until 2000 uh, in South Lebanon. And then so UNIFIL is, is sitting here under this charter, right? Yeah. saying like ensure Israeli withdrawal or, or whatever and, well... Obviously, that didn't happen until 2000 when it did. But then the other parts of its mandate meant that it kept being renewed. Yeah, right. Definitely. And I I think this kind of explains why uh, UNIFIL was necessary after that and why UNIFIL is still necessary now. And I think the major uh, point was like 2006 when the Israeli war in Lebanon happened um, and uh, Security Council passed another resolution, 1701. They're now very famous for containing uh, an article saying that all illegal or non-state armed groups in Lebanon should be dissolved, right? And 1701, what it did is it changed the mandate of uh, UNIFIL from a small... First of all, UNIFIL was a small force of like 2,000 troops. And after 2006, it was boosted something like over 10,000 with a cap of 15,000. Huge increase, huge increase, but, and, and also like a, a bigger uh, mission, a bigger role as well, right? Exactly. So its mandate was expanded to include things like the helping the Lebanese force, the Lebanese armed forces, so the army, clean the area of operation, of UNIFIL's operation, um, of any non-state, non-state armed forces, uh, implying Hezbollah. So, and so this, this is the area south of the Latani River Litani. and north of the, the, the border, we'll say. Yeah. Or the blue line, yeah. like what the UN has said is the blue line after the 78 uh, invasion. Um, and also assist the Lebanese government to like secure its borders and preventing arms um, smuggling, which is also kind of implying Hezbollah. So this Security Council Resolution 1701 passed in 2006 kind of established UNIFIL's role as an assistant to the Lebanese government in case the Lebanese government wants to crack down on Hezbollah to a certain extent, right? And like to uh, and like officially introduced, make uh, disarming this area as um, a major part of the of the mandate. And, and so, the reason that UNIFIL's mandate always comes up at the end of August is actually because of what happened in two thousand six. The war ended in August, and th- this uh, all began. Uh, UNIFIL in its current form began in August 2006 uh, when this was first passed. So every year this comes up at the end of every August. Um, we, we've talked about the history, though, but what do they actually do? do you, you mentioned there's like 10 or 11,000 troops on the ground. Yeah, so UNIFIL has like the troops, um, which are like 10,300 um, soldiers from around 41 countries. And they also have the civilian staff, um, just over 800 um, That's a really big force for a, an area of, uh, of operations that we're talking about. It's, it's like a, a thousand square kilometers. Yeah, one tenth of Lebanon. Yeah, it, it's, and Lebanon's a tiny country, yeah. so an even tinier area, and you're cramming in like 10,000 troops there. Yeah, and the troops are coming from like a lot of countries, 41 countries, but the biggest contributors are actually Indonesia, Italy, India, Nepal, and Ghana. So 
it's not like a some kind of a western uh, armed force or something something of the kind like a lot of uh, global south um countries are involved in the unifil and the main biggest contributor is indonesia which interestingly uh, does not recognize the state of israel that that is interesting yeah yeah um and israel has cre- has criticized that saying that the fact that indonesia and malaysia and a third country are part of this force while they do not recognize israel is very controversial yeah and we'll we'll get into israel's view on on unifil a little bit later but yeah but your question was like what are they doing like what is unifil actually doing if it cannot do some of the things it's mandated to do and what they really do is monitor and prevent violations trying to monitor and prevent violations of 1701 uh, through coordination between uh, lebanese army like the lebanese army the israelis um and you, uh, this force is basically the only military force or like major military force that can do this role right no one no coordination between the lebanese israelis is possible yeah we're we're still technically at war exactly. right so they do like patrols and they like establish observation points um monitor any violations of the blue line that's mainly mainly what they do right right and said so like these like almost daily violations like israel like overflying lebanese airspace and stuff like that you, the un keeps count of all of this stuff right exactly. and apart from that a more minor aspect is supporting local communities with like projects um free health services medical dental veterinary services some training programs but th- these are things that coming as initiatives from the troops themselves from like soldiers of a specific country knowing a specific skill well like the uh, the indians supposedly like teach yoga and stuff exactly. like that right and, yeah exactly yeah. and some other troops martial arts and it's uh, so this they have the small projects and they have a program called quick impact project which is about like uh, meeting specific needs with very bud- limited budgets um so yeah but that's a more minor role because the major role is just peacekeeping yeah so you've got like the peacekeeping stuff you have like the coordination and sort of like deconfliction and de-escalation of conflict mm-hmm. uh and then you've got like these sort of like softer civilian initiatives and stuff like that it sounds like it's a pretty good thing so why does nikki haley hate unifil uh i guess <laughs> I mean, not really, but like last year, there was this big blow up led by Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, over UNIFIL and o- over its role and over the uh, mandate renewal. Right. Yeah, it was just ahead of the re- renewal. And uh, Haley made this big deal about UNIFIL not being loyal to its, its mandate, uh, giving a free uh, a green light for Hezbollah to keep smuggling weapons and uh, her attack attack was kind of personalized it was uh, directed against uh, Michael Berry the leader of Unifil back then yeah the um, Irish Irish major major general i believe exactly. uh yeah and she said uh, the Unifil was giving terrorism a pass and uh, she accused him of being blind to Hezbollah's alleged activities um including the massive flow of illegal weapons that's a quote into southern lebanon and uh, she accused him of having an embarrassing lack of understanding of what's going on and saying he seems to be the only person in south lebanon who is blind to what hezbollah is doing so it was pretty heavy yeah it was it was really just a, a, a almost highly personalized attack yeah. on, on him it, very much beyond what you expect any any ambassador to say exactly <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah but i mean i mean like to be 
to, to put this in context a little bit, though, Nikki Haley as well is, you know, the representative of a rather uh, extremist administration. Um, and, and she herself is like she's very hawkish. Yeah, she's very. So hawkish. she's an extremist within an extremist, you know, uh, regime. Basically. Exactly. And her performance on Palestine, for example, confirms how like uh, she's unapologetically pro-Israel in any situation. So, so I mean, maybe she was holding back on, on Michael Berry. Yeah. Okay, that's, <laughs> yeah. And Berry answer, responded saying um, there was a- absolutely no evidence that this massive flow of weapons was happening. And he said, if, and I quote, if there was a large cache of weapons, we would know about it. So Berry said, if you have evidence presented otherwise, shut up. And she did like um, get back at him in the in the official meeting where where uh, the resolution was passed um, attacking him again without giving evidence but she said we have to be honest for too long Unifil's leadership has failed to make sure this goal is realized in particular Unifil commander general Berry's lack of understanding of the threat Hezbollah poses to the region is baffling again personalized attack accusing Unifil of being in bed with Hezbollah very explicitly but like this was like kind of diplomatic maneuver, right? Trying to influence Security Council members into taking a more like a harsher stance, I think. Yeah. So supposedly they uh-huh. wanted to uh, they, they wanted in the mandate renewal to to sort of like beef up uh, Unifil to be like a more explicitly anti Hezbollah or, or have like greater tools to combat, uh, you know, the proliferation of weapons between the Litani and the border. And uh, and so they they did succeed a bit in changing some language, right? But uh, n- not not a lot. Nothing. Right? They 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 did enough to like claim victory, like oh yes, we we did this, we beefed up the 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 resolution, but really basically it, it's minor changes. If you if you compare the 2016 resolution to the 2017 revolu- uh, resolution, then it it really is minor changes. Yeah. Uh, basically, like more patrols and some like virtue signaling over implementing uh, security. Council Resolution uh, 1701. Uh, and, and Unifil has basically responded to this, right? Uh, I, I had the opportunity to go down to Nakura uh, earlier this year in February. And, you know, they told me, oh, yeah, um, at, as of that point, you know, our overall patrols are up like 12%. But more importantly, we're diversifying the patrols. So we're doing a lot more foot patrols. Uh, that was up like 64% over August 2017. Um, they're doing like nighttime helicopter patrols, uh, it, but it, that's sort of the thing. They they have to they see it as like they they need to sort of diversify the number of patrols rather than just beef up the number of them because as we mentioned, it's such a small area of operations. Yeah. You don't want to like piss everybody off, yeah, because that's counterproductive. Yeah, and it's an area with people, right? You can't just be exactly. patrolling all the time. Exactly. It's a dystopian situation if you yeah. have like these white trucks in your village every single day. Right. You, you can't have like armored vehicles rolling through like tiny little streets of villages all the time. With high like, protection. That's... And it's just it's not a nice dynamic to have around. There. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to make like locals hate you yeah, and, yeah. and not cooperate with you when you when you want them to. I mean, the question, though, is, is Haley right? Was she right about all, all of this stuff about Hezbollah operating south of the Litani? I mean... Not to support Haley in any way. <laughs> I'm very keen to say, like, I do not endorse anything Haley has ever said, maybe. 
But she makes sense in the sense in the sense of Hezbollah operating south of the Litani, violating 1701. Not explicitly, right? Hezbollah doesn't do any like major military uh, exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no evidence for this, but this is one of those things that just logically it makes sense, and every indication is that this this is happening. Yeah, I mean, recently we heard Ali Hassan Khalil, uh, finance Lebanon's finance minister and a member of. Uh, the Amal movement, saying that any discussion of disarming the resistance south of the Litani is rejected. So he he just like rejected one of the main... Just why is somebody from Amal saying this? Yeah, it seems that it's Amal, not Hezbollah. But, yeah. But Hezbollah has, had already kind of given its input on this. Uh, specifically, Nasrallah, one year after the resolution in 2007, in an interview, he said uh, that he mocked kind of the assumption that Hezbollah would be taken out of south, south of Litani because it's not a regular army that can be withdrawn. It's a guerrilla organization and it's always present because it's formed by local residents. Um, like if you go to a village south of the Litani, you would find young men who are enrolled in Hezbollah um, and they are Hezbollah fighters. Would they withdraw? No, they are local residents. You cannot take them uh, out. You can never withdraw. They live there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's their, exactly. It's their area. Uh, so Hezbollah cannot be withdrawn. But uh, he also said more explicitly that Hezbollah is actually stronger than it was before the war, including, or to quote him, even south of the Litani. So it's clear yeah. that Hezbollah does not have a problem with that, with being a military presence of the Litani, but it's also cautious about like not showing it very explicitly. Right. They've never so, they've never given uh, either Nikki Haley or the Israelis any sort of direct evidence. Exactly. Of this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if it, what do you make sense? Uh, what do you say also makes sense just from a logical perspective? If you're Hezbollah, you're not going to like this is a prime location. You, you can't. It's, it's part of your mission as the resistance resisting occupation and resisting Israel, right? It's part of your mission to be in this area. You cannot complete your mission without having a presence in this area. Yeah, it's impossible. And this is yeah. the first area that Israel occupies upon the emergence of any, of any war. So this is the main area that like has been had been occupied till 2000. It's, it's just it sounds ridiculous from a military perspective that you abandon this this area. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. So so does it make any sense then even to call for UNIFIL to try to, you know, disarm this area or counter Hezbollah south of the Litani? I mean, it doesn't from a realistic perspective, but if you look at the content of 1701, it says that UNIFIL will assist the Lebanese armed forces in taking steps towards the establishment between the Blue Line and the Litani River of an area free of any armed personnel, assets or weapons other than those of the Lebanese government and UNIFIL. Right. So yeah. it's very clear that it's implying Hezbollah saying um, one of our missions is to help the army if the army wants to make sure there's no Hezbollah uh, armed presence here. Yeah. Um, so the, the Security Council resolution actually does say that that UNIFIL should confront Hezbollah. And also it, it kind of reiterates what had been uh, mentioned in Security Council resolutions 1559 and 1680 which called for dissolving all military militias and armed groups uh, in Lebanon and also implying Hezbollah because it's the only major militia that was not dissolved after the civil war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Everybody else handed in their weapons as part of the, the Taif uh, agreements or theoretically did, right? Exactly. Yeah. But then you had Kofi Annan, the head of the UN back then, 
right after this resolution saying dismantling Hezbollah is not the direct mandate of the UN and that the UN would only support in this task if it's asked to do so by the Lebanese government. So it's very clear that Kofi Annan was very realistic in, in what the UNIFIL can and cannot do, do yeah. um, which matches the reality, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so, like, it's weird to me that the U.S. Uh, was pushing so hard for this. It, since, like, I'm sure Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley's a smart person. I'm sure she knows, like, this is not exactly possible. So, like, I, I've thought about this, and and part of me thinks, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe part of the U.S. strategy here was, well, if we if we are pushing on this side, if we push Hezbollah from this side, maybe it'll sort of, you know, rock the boat a little bit, and maybe it'll give a little bit of space to Hezbollah's like domestic political uh, enemies to pressure them in other ways or, or get concessions from them in other ways. Um, mm. Maybe, uh, yeah. but that seems like a pretty uh, vague strategy. Right? I agree, yeah. But another one could be um, that they're doing this as a strategy to kind of eventually get rid of UNIFIL as maybe the obstacle to um, to a direct confrontation between Israel and, and Hezbollah, right? Yeah, I mean, UNIFIL right now, it sits there on the border. If if there ever is any sort of confrontation, it would like slow Israel down. Well, it didn't really in 2006, uh, but it theoretically could present obstacles, right? It's something that if you're a military planner, you have to think about oh, there's third country uh, armed forces here. I need to be careful. Like, certainly we don't want to uh, have any sort of blue on green incidents or anything like that, right? Yeah, but I think this argument as well is faced by the basic idea that the vacuum caused by a potential withdrawal of UNIFIL from South Lebanon would be Hezbollah being more in control of the area, um, having the, the space to do what it wants, with absolutely no restrictions if you don't have the UN peacekeeping force, right? Right. So, I mean, the only restriction being the Lebanese army, but we can talk about later. About yeah. That later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think what what kind of um, what we can conclude from this is that the only thing that makes sense in this strategy that the US and Israel are pursuing is to kind of delegitimize UNIFIL in a way that legitimizes Israeli aggression in the future, right? So if UNIFIL is accused of being in bed with Hezbollah continuously and constantly, then when Israel attacks Lebanon, when Israel attacks Hezbollah, when Israel stops coordinating with UNIFIL in, in times of aggression, then Nikki Haley would say, oh, we told you so. So, you you know, it's your fault because you didn't listen to us in the beginning when we said that Hezbollah was, uh, that UNIFIL was in bed with Hezbollah. So kind of legitimizing future Israeli aggression, I guess. Right, right, right. Or, or even if they just like, well, UNIFIL is just feckless and everything that like, almost achieves the same the same goal uh so i, th- I think that a really interesting part of this though is how does hezbollah on the other side of things how does hezbollah see unifil are they just happy that they're there well no it gets a little bit complicated right yeah i guess so i mean one would expect hezbollah to have a similar position to israel because it's the other side the story with un peacekeeping being like the any peacekeeping forces always in this awkward position where it's hated by both and liked by both at the same time. Yeah. Right. But Hezbollah is more cautious, I think, than than we would expect in in, in relation to um, its attitude towards UNIFIL. And I think what reflected most clearly Hezbollah's position on UNIFIL was Nasrallah's speech um, celebrating the victory after 2006 war. So it was in September 2006. And he said, 
and I quote, we have welcomed you and I reiterate that I welcome you in the framework of a clear mission. Your mission is to support the Lebanese army. Your mission is not to spy on Hezbollah or disarm the resistance. This has been confirmed by Secretary General Kofi Annan and several officials. So Nasrallah, he was saying, if you know what you're doing here and if you are committed to this very specific mission, then we welcome you. And he kind of continued in this language. Yeah, it's sort of like a warning, right? So this is, this is right after UNIFIL was beefed up. It was right after it got its new mandate, its new mission and everything. And, and so it sounds to me like you're saying, okay, come on in, but here's a warning. Don't try to go beyond the, the very like narrow confines of your mission here. Yeah, and he it was more explicit even saying that because he said, like, pay attention. He told UNIFIL leadership to pay attention because, and I quote, I have heard some information that there are those who want to drag these inter- international forces to a clash with the resistance. And then he added, this is dangerous. The international forces have come for a specific mission and they should not interfere in the Lebanese affairs and lead to such involvement. So he was very clear in his like kind of political threatening thing. And yeah, like uh, here, uh, here are the confines. This, this, this is the line. Exactly. Yeah. And he was critical a bit of the UN when he said that, you know, we've had the, all these countries that contribute troops to UNIFIL. Um, he said that they are ashamed of saying they are here to defend Lebanon and more comfortable with saying we are defending the security of Israel. So he was kind of hinting that they might be might have a bias against Lebanon or be like in this position where they are embarrassed of uh, of them operating in this area at the same time. Which sort of mirrors like what you were talking about with Israel, uh, uh, Israel's view of like Indonesia, right? Like saying, oh, th- these guys, we don't know if we trust you, right? And we should note that this was in a time where Hezbollah's population was very angry at Unifil because it was the time where we we knew for sure that when Israel attacks, Unifil will not stop it, you know, because we saw it firsthand. Israel was attacking and it killed 1,500 people and Unifil was barely able to do anything about it. Right. They, did, they didn't uh, really do anything to stop the Israeli invasion and they didn't do anything really for civilian protection either, which is crucial if you're, if you're there as a peacekeeping mission, you have to protect the population. Exactly. And then uh, the most prominent Shiite cleric in Lebanon, Muhammad Hassan, Sayyid Muhammad Hassan Fadlallah, said explicitly that the Lebanese have the right to be wary and like cautious in the relationship and perception of UNIFIL because it seems to be more interested in protecting Israel and its agenda than protecting the Lebanese. So it was in a, in a time where Nasrallah's words are actually pretty moderate compared to, you know, the popular feeling back then towards UNIFIL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, you, you still run into like people on the extremes as well today, uh, right, who who will say, oh, no, UNIFIL is just like this, a, a bunch of spies from the West. Uh, you know, it, it's basically an imperial force, occupy, mm. you know, occupying part of Lebanon. And, and that's sort of like the extreme side of, of some Hezbollah supporters, right? And, and others in Lebanon. Yeah, but like Nasrallah has kind of maintained his like moderate rhetoric about UNIFIL right. throughout. And Nasrallah has more value than everyone else combined when it's when it comes to like determining the attitude towards something, right? He's, in terms of like... When it comes to the resistance, leader, yeah, right? Like he is the voice of the resistance. He is the yeah. voice, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he kept it, kind of maintained the same attitude. In 2009, he accused Israel of like 
threatening to wage war in Lebanon specifically for a couple of reasons, but specifically to force the UNIFIL into taking a different kind of role towards Hezbollah, kind of changing what he says is changing the rules of engagement of UNIFIL. But he said that this would also fail. He was right in that. Um, nothing major happened. Um, and upon the renewal in 2017, which we talked about now, um, he celebrated Nikki Haley's relative defeat. And he said that there was an American-British effort to make UNIFIL a force in defense of Israel, and it failed. So Nasrallah is kind of maintaining this cautious, moderate, and kind of nice attitude towards UNIFIL, at the same time always um, mentioning how UNIFIL is a potentially dangerous force because some people want to use it against And Lebanon that's sort of Hezbollah. like the, the really interesting takeaway from like looking into this uh, over the past week for me was just how how like layered things are with UNIFIL with its support. There's not just like, oh, we love UNIFIL, we hate UNIFIL. No, it's a really complex picture on both like the American and Israeli side and on like the, the resistance side, right? Yeah. Totally. It's, there are there are ways that both sides benefit from the presence of UNIFIL and there, but there are also ways that like they, neither side really fully trusts the force. Totally. Yeah. And I, that's, I think, the the evidence that like any other case of peacekeeping these people in blue helmets are always in a very awkward position right like yeah. they have to please everyone at the same time be assertive with the different sides and no one likes them no one hates them it's just a weird situation always for them right 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 how do, how do you make everybody happy you can't yeah definitely yeah yeah so uh it, it seems as though this year there's not that right now we haven't heard like a lot of noises that there's going to be any problem with the mandate renewal. We don't know. We'll, we'll find out on, on Thursday when they vote. Yeah, it feels smoother. Let's hope it just remains this way <laughs> because Nikki Haley is, you know, scary sometimes. <laughs> uh, that's all the time we have uh, for today. Uh, we'll be back next week with another topic. Uh, until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil. <laughs>